Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. Welcome. So how many of you guys know that in Romans 1.17, I think I believe it's actually verse 16, that Paul talks about how the salvation, the gospel, actually came for the Jew first and then to the Greek. It's kind of an interesting concept for us that aren't Jewish, but I believe this is the context of what uh, Joel was preaching on last week and what um, the passage that I was given this week. And, and so I'll just quote Romans 1.16 and maybe a little bit of 17, uh, the Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for in it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Um, that is an incredible phrase, and also for the Greek. Um, we are going to find, and, and that, in a sense, in, in our vernacular, that is referencing anyone who's not a Jew, which, if you're a human being, you're in that category. So... Um, Acts 10.28 speaks of a circumstance very early on in the ministry of the apostles when, when the gospel was primarily going to the Jewish people. Um, the apostle Peter, he, was, he had a special vision where this blanket came down with a bunch of animals that he was said in the law by the Lord, you shouldn't be eating these things. And there was, there was a new revelation that was given to him that might have been embedded in the Old Testament but was made clear to him that the message of the cross was not just for the Jewish people. So this guy Cornelius, he was a Roman soldier, and Peter was sent to his house by the Holy Spirit to actually preach the gospel to him. Um, it seems certain that he was ready to convert. He just didn't know what it was that he should believe in. He was, a, he was one of those interesting categories that some theologians don't like talking about. He was a God-fearer. Uh, it's a pretty awesome thing to know that what God can reveal to someone through very little revelation, they can have some sort of reverence for God. I think that's beautiful. Um, so God led Peter to Cornelius and his family in their house, and it says in verse 28 in chapter 10 of Acts, you know it is forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner, but God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean. This was primarily the mindset of a Jewish person to the Gentiles, and Jesus was a Jew, but he began to upset this mindset when he, remember in John 4, he ministered to a Samaritan woman at the well who um, was essentially roughly half Jew, half non-Jew, and it was the way she was described uh, or thought of by the apostles and those that knew Jesus went there was that she just wasn't really worth speaking to. And I wonder what that meant. If she was part Jew, I wonder what that meant for everyone that had no, not 1% of Jewish blood in them. Um, it was pretty sad. And you know that this, this idea it, it, that Peter had and, and the, the average Jewish mindset, it was forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner. Um, it's really difficult to find that in the law. Um, I would say that's something that was developed by the Jews over time in their culture. Um, there's clear commandments about intermarrying 
with pagans, but it doesn't talk about that they're so, in a sense, non-human or so unloved by God that the Jewish community in the Old Testament, the Hebrew community, could not associate with them. So isn't it, isn't it amazing how um, a community that is called by the living God can come so far away from what their actual calling was, was to be a light to the nations? Um, so we're going to see why we needed Jesus, and God happened to use a group of broken vessels like the Jews or like any other people he could have chosen to bring about the Messiah. So through the Apostle Paul, an apostolic ministry to the Gentiles had been inaugurated. There was not anybody that God had clearly called to focus on that ministry. And in this passage, we're going to talk about chapter 3 in Ephesians verses 3, I'm sorry, verses 7 through 13. He's essentially kind of what commentators say, it's like an excursus. He's taking a little break from what he's been discussing, and he's really focusing on um, the uniqueness of his calling and why it's important for the Jewish or for the Gentile peoples. And Joel did so wonderful in discussing that last week. And honestly, I believe uh, this, what I'm going to be teaching on tonight, just continues in that, that theme. So the Apostle Paul has been given a stewardship. It's this idea of a household manager to manage something that's been given to him by God. And that is to proclaim the mystery of the gospel to the Gentiles, that they would be included in God's family, the church. So a quick review from last week before we jump into verse 7. As Joel mentioned last week, this mystery was made known to Paul through direct revelation. This wasn't even something that Peter, as a believer, could have found in detail by navigating all of the Old Testament as a Jewish converted to Christ, a Jewish Christian that actually had the Holy Spirit in him and would give him the ability to have even more enlightenment as to what the, the meaning of many of the scriptures said. It's not something that was in the Bible the way it was revealed to Paul. And so that is why the New Testament, there are many things that were, in a sense, covered up in the mind of God. They were always in his mind, but he chose to reveal them at a certain time. It's very interesting how as we believe God is omniscient, he always knows things and he always has a specific purpose and plan, but he seems to only disseminate the wisdom and the information to humankind, to his people, that he desires for a specific purpose at a given time. And we have to trust in him that when he gives us what he gives us through his word, that it's enough, that it's more than enough. And I would say compared to the little general or direct revelation that the old, many of the Old Testament saints have, we have um, an abundance of wisdom in the Word of God in the Old and New Testament scriptures. So God's redemption, redemptive plan that was in his mind from all eternity was revealed to Paul at this specific point in human history. The gospel levels the playing field. So as Paul is going to be discussing here, he removes the Jew-Gentile distinction and places both Jew and Gentile into the humanity-mankind category. So those cultural, those ethnic, those religious distinctions, he's saying the gospel flattens those things. And before a holy God, the gospel says there is mankind, and they are all lost in sin, and they need to know the Savior. And it's wonderful how, I think that's a huge um, purpose of what Paul's writing in the book of Romans is that Jew and Gentile are alike under sin, under condemnation, without the work of the Messiah. And it's amazing when you read 
Paul's epistles, how much similarity there is in the heart of his theology. I mean, the more and more I study him, the more I realize this. And it's wonderful to, to see the Holy Spirit connect the truth in the word through all of the wisdom and revelation God gave this apostle to do the ministry he's called them to. So um, we are all alike under condemnation. We are all alike in our universal need for a savior. Romans 5, 18 and 19. I, I think chapter 5 in Romans, especially the last half of it, really does an excellent job at helping us understand humankind's special need for Christ regardless of your birth your ethnicity, your religious background. It puts everyone into the category of humankind. So then, verse 18, chapter 5 in Romans, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So, Paul says, let's, let's start in verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 3. Here we're, we're going to get into our text now. Actually, we'll start in verse 6. It kind of leads up to this. So the Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I, Paul, was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. So, he was made a servant of this gospel. Can you guys think of the unique circumstance of his calling in Acts chapter 9? When he was on the road to Damascus, he was doing his thing. He was, honestly, I believe he thought he was serving the living God and pleasing him. Um, he was doing what Yahweh wanted him to do, at least in his mindset as a Pharisee. He was a very religious person regarding the righteousness of the law. It's a, and, and then after his conversion, uh, during the, the sequence where uh, the, the narrative discusses his, the purpose in his calling, it says, this man is my chosen instrument to take my name, speaking of Jesus, Jesus is speaking to him in, in some sort of revelation here, to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So if you guys think of, uh, there was a pretty big time period. I think it was like 10 to 13 years before he really got into his full-blown ministry. Yes, he was doing ministry, but like us all, when we have a calling on our life, there's a time of preparation, right? There's a time where we need to get ready for it. Just because we're believers, it doesn't mean we're ready and equipped to effectively carry out the ministry um, that he's called us to. And, and so I think this is a common theme we find out in much of the Bible. Even the Old Testament patriarchs, God worked his plan out through them, but there was much sanctification and preparation that he, he worked in their lives, uh, applying much grace in their lives, but giving them, um, just slowly showing more about himself and his plan and purpose for them. So w w when I think of this, I think of Paul um, knowing the Old Testament so well. I mean, I can't imagine in, in this time in the New Testament, someone other than Christ knowing the Old Testament better than the Apostle Paul. And I can only imagine as a new believer, through that, that time of training, God was showing him, in a sense, through the Holy Spirit, how to connect all the dots, how to connect the gospel to all of the complexities of the Old Testament. And he was making all these amazing connections. And I think, I believe the, the New Testament, in a lot of ways, the writings that he had, a lot of it is the fruit of that wisdom 
of that training God put in him to connect the Old and the New Covenant, to help him understand the continuity of the Old and New Covenants, but also what has been finished and completed in the work of the Messiah, in the work of Christ, and what the New Covenant entails and how people come to know God through Jesus and his new and permanent covenant with his people. So, Verse 7, I was made a servant of this gospel. We see clearly that it was a calling that God sovereignly made in Paul's life by the gift of God's grace. And what was this grace for? This grace was given to him, says that was given to me, Paul, by the working of his power. The gospel, what Paul spoke in verse 6, this gospel, in this context, he's speaking of the fact that the Gentiles are co-heirs members of the same body and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What's awesome is we're going to go a little bit further and we're going to discuss this, but there's a term that Peter uses as well, but Paul uses this term multifaceted or manifold wisdom, and, and sometimes it's used as the manifold grace of God. And there are many different ways, I believe, uh, the gospel is described. There's so much wisdom in the gospel that we don't want to miss out on the riches. Sometimes the gospel, he's, the, the apostle is not speaking specifically and exclusively, not that it's not the, of the uttermost important, but that when Paul is describing the gospel in detail to believers, he's not always specifically talking about the element of the gospel that gets someone saved, that brings someone to the kingdom of God. But he, a lot of times, speaks about the deeper wisdom and the mysteries that are revealed to those who know him. The beauty of the gospel, the beauty that God is doing in and through the church, which is exactly the, the primary theme of, uh, of the book of Ephesians. God is speaking to on-fire believers through the Apostle Paul by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, inspiring him to write this book to not only encourage those that are following hard after him in these various Ephesian communities and those surrounding. Um, but he essentially is really laying out the wisdom, the special wisdom that God gave him through this special revelation um, because of the ministry he gave him. And he's sharing this deeper wisdom of the gospel um, that is reserved for believers, those that have trusted Christ so that they might know what they truly have, what, what the inheritance is that they have, which we spoke about many weeks ago. That, that, that word is used by Paul in chapter 1. So, the gospel to Paul was not just for conversion, but to renew the minds of the Ephesian believers, as they, through Paul's teaching, understood the greater implications of Christ's redeeming work. I think that's so wonderful. And There was a small book I read a long time ago. It was kind of a theme speaking to men, but one of the chapters was never move beyond the gospel. And the more you realize how rich it is, I mean, that's a perfect definition of what the Christian life should be. We should never move beyond the gospel. Um, Paul Tripp says it so well, and, and it's his in the context of grace, but it's essentially all wrapped up in the theme of the gospel. He says, there's no such thing as a grace graduate. You never graduate from the grace of God. We are always equally and fully dependent on God's grace, whether it's the moment we believe or 30, 40 years into walking with Christ. So I love those little amazing nuggets of wisdom that God's people in the church give us to pass on to one another. So this is grace for service. It's a unique work of the Holy Spirit in Paul's life. God gave him grace as he gives us as individual believers grace, not just to keep to ourselves, but a lot of the grace that's spoken of 
um, that is not the salvific grace God's give, God gives us, but the grace that God gives his individual believers in the church. It's actually for other people. It's to serve others. The, that is essentially why, you know, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of God's grace that, you know, flow out to the church so that they can work together in their gifts, functioning in unity to build one another up, to know him more and to serve him more effectively. So essentially, Paul understands that this grace he has is for this specific ministry, this specific apostolic ministry to the Gentiles, not only to so that they might be saved, but to also, as we see in the book of Ephesians, to help them understand the deeper realities of who they believed in and what that entails for their lives. So the working of his power at the end of verse 7, by the working of his power, I think of that as a perfect example in his calling, his calling was an incredible working of God's power in his life on the road to Damascus. That was a very unique, abnormal New Testament circumstance, but God clearly had a vessel that he wanted to use for this ministry that, I don't know about you guys, but the more I read about Paul, I, I admire him in the Lord so much, and I go, I do not want that ministry. I'm so glad <laughs> a guy like Paul was giving it to him. I'm just thankful that we get to glean off of it. But it was radical, the transformation. I mean, the mindset Paul had walking down the road to Damascus and the mindset he had after that encounter, it was a great example of repentance. He went the opposite way. He made a U-turn. Um, it was an incredible miracle in his life. So this power was displayed in God's grace to give him the authority in his ministry and sustain him in the midst of the trials and tribulations he faced. Can you think of a New Testament believer that... that you know, post-ascension that struggled more in trials and tribulations than the Apostle Paul. I mean, I'm sure there's annals of books that are written on the sufferings that Paul went through. This grace not only empowered him to do his ministry, but to suffer so that we're going to read, and I'll just read this right now, the, essentially what he says in verse 13. He says, So then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are for your glory. That's so cool. So just a reminder, Paul is actually in prison when he's writing this, and what's amazing, it's not hindering him from the confidence he had and the hope he has for these believers and the work God wants to still do through him, even when he wasn't in prison. Uh, when, if, if these things weren't mentioned and historians didn't uncover um, some of the help to kind of know where Paul's at in his life, um, it's really hard to read some of the prison epistles and think, oh yeah, Paul's in prison. He's miserable. I mean, if I was in prison, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't be doing stuff like this. So it's incredible the work God is doing in his life and the devotion this man has to his calling. What, what, a, what, a, what a word for all of us. Whatever the Lord has specifically called us to do as believers, um, it's not going to be the same as Paul, but are we, are we, exemplifying some degree of devotion like Paul did, or at least going on that trajectory. So let's move into verse 8. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles that the incalculable riches of Christ. So it's interesting, he calls himself the least of all the saints, um, how many of you guys have either done this yourself or heard preachers or teachers when they talk about 
they're in Christ, when they talk about themselves, they, they reference themselves as sinners. How often is that something that you find believers referring to themselves as? I heard that a lot growing up. And what's interesting is, I think when believers say that, they need to be very careful not to, to distinguish the difference between, yes, they have a sin nature and they still struggle with sin, but in Christ, being a sinner is not their identity anymore. Being their sinner is being a saved, sanctified believer that does struggle with sin, but Paul calls himself a saint, not a sinner. And I, I think we can learn much from this, because even though he says the least of all the saints, he has a very humble attitude, he knows that who he is is exclusive because who he is in Christ and what Christ has done for him. And that grace that was given to him, I believe he's talking about, in a lot of ways, his, the salvific grace that, that God gave to him in Christ through his conversion. Paul was humbled by the ministry that was given to him by God in Christ through the working of the Holy Spirit. I believe, you know, from his conversion on, he continued, whether it was through his equipping, his discipleship, his training, the ministry, the trials, the tribulations. I, I, it seems like Paul, God did what he needed to do for Paul to continue to grow as a humble man. I think humility was a mark of why his ministry was so powerful. And guys, that, that is something that we should not hesitate to pray for on a regular basis, that, that the Lord would remind us and help us to maintain a humility and grow in humility. It's interesting, and I, I'm not sure if the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians is, is listing out every fruit of the Spirit. I know some um, Bible commentators say that the, um, the gifts of the Spirit aren't listed in exhaustion. I'm not sure when you put together all the gifts that are listed in the different epistles. I'm not sure where I land on that. Um, I, I think they're, they're pretty inclusive. However, um, it's very interesting that we don't find humility in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. There, there's a, for example, there's a verse in James where it talks about humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. It seems to be something where God is calling people to initiate. I, I'm blown away by it, but um, I, I really do think God commands us to take the first step in responding to him, admitting our brokenness, and I believe the Holy Spirit floods in our lives with the grace we need to maintain our humility. And I think part of it is just the change in a mindset, thinking of ourselves in a way that is accurate with the gospel, in, in a way that's accurate with our humanity and our brokenness as people that are fully dependent on the grace of Christ and salvation. So God's mysterious plan, uh, we'll, we'll go into second part of 8 and verse 9. He gave him this grace, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. That's, that's, pretty, that's amazing. Um, so God in Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit, gave Paul grace to proclaim this message to the Gentiles. He gave him grace for a specific ministry. Um, he shed light into his heart, the revelation he needed to administer, administer, to give out this mystery that was hidden for the ages in God who created all things. I'm so glad that uh, the beginning, or maybe towards the beginning of 1 Corinthians 2 was read, because I think the theme that Paul is discussing in that book 
speaking to the Corinthians about how no one knows the thoughts of man except a man's spirit. Thus, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. It is amazing that what I believe revelation essentially is, is God downloading to man or an individual something that has always been on his mind, but he specifically chooses to give to one of his prophets or apostles when he desires to give it to them. And he doesn't, he gives us a lot, but he definitely does not give us anywhere close to an exhaustive knowledge of what he knows. But God is opening up his mind through the Spirit and giving Paul this wisdom, this beautiful wisdom that helps him understand the beauty of the household of God that he is creating in the gospel that doesn't just include Jews, which is what we were saying earlier in, in Romans 1, for the Jew first, but also for the Greek. Thank God there was that but also for the Greek. For the, for the Gentile, because none of us would be here if it was a, a salvation primarily for the Jewish people. We are all alike in our humanity. So God's mysterious plan, a commentator, Clinton Ardle, made a really um, helpful statement in this verse. He said, God had called Paul to be a steward of God's intent to create a special household of the people who actually form a home he indwells. A corporate body of both Jews and Greeks whom he has redeemed in his own blood. It, the interesting thing is to us, this doesn't seem like a complex mystery, but it's because hindsight's twenty twenty, right? I mean, we see it. We, we know what has been given to us because we are on the other side of this amazing revelation that God had chosen to hold back from humanity until this point in time. You know, we need to trust that God's timing, whether it's revealing to us uh, a specific word for a season in our life or opening up doors in our lives, we really do need to trust that God's timing is something that might not make sense to us, but he sees the beginning from the end and he sees the destination he's brought you into and he will give you what you need and progress your life as he sees fit. And if there is something he desires to give to you that will help you in your stage in life as you seek him, he knows exactly what to say, who to bring in your life, what wisdom to give you, what doors to open, what doors to shut. And that is an element that I think is beautiful in trusting in God's sovereignty. Um, I think that's one of the most amazing ways we can place our faith in God. In it, the fact that in his character... He is sovereign to keep his promise and to carry the work he has started in us on to completion. Um, he will reveal to us things. He reveals to mankind things. He reveals to his people things when, when he knows that it's the right time. And may we just trust in him that his wisdom is far above ours. So, moving on, verse 10 This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. Raise your hand if you've read this and thought, man, this is a difficult passage. What does this mean? I read it like four or five days ago for probably the sixth or seventh time, maybe the tenth time in my life. I'm like, oh man, I get to teach on that. Great. What is that talking about? Maybe, maybe 5% of it will get drawn out today. I'm sure there's many thoughts on this passage. Um, th- there's an interesting um, perspective that 
This commentator, Clinton Arnold, he's done a lot of research. He, he is a professor over at Talbot Seminary in California. And he works along with um, some of those other apologists that we watch videos on. He has a pretty cool role at that school. But he, he actually was talking about... Um, have any of you guys have heard of the term animistic? Uh, if a culture is animistic, it's one that's very connected to the spiritual realm, and essentially that means that's more the evil spiritual realm. They're very on a daily basis. They have an awareness and a mindfulness of the spiritual realm realm that can have a major influence on their life. And this was more common in ancient civilizations than it is, especially in Western civilizations today. But there are many civilizations and cultures throughout the world that are heavily steeped in a, an animistic culture. And what's interesting, I never would have thought about this, but, but he laid out a lot of research saying that, that the Ephesians actually were essentially an animistic people. They were very entrenched in the evil side of the spiritual realm. And he makes this point that the reason he talks so much about um, the power of God and who they are in Christ, and um, in a sense in Ephesians 6, we'll go to this later, the power and authority they have to overcome the evil one is because it seems like these people had an incredible amount of spiritual warfare. And you know what? Whether it's right or wrong, it seems like this guy has spent um, a lot of his life studying this specific book. And wh what I love about it is um, the perspective he was giving, it seems to help us understand maybe a little bit more of what the Ephesian community was going through and what these people were like um, outside of Christ and what they were struggling with in their culture. But um, I, I think, I don't know if I have a, a quote from him on this, but he said something that uh, along the lines of Paul in terms of speaking to, about spiritual warfare in this book, he said there is no other New Testament writing in Paul's epistles that speaks so much about spiritual warfare than Paul in the book of Ephesians. And I, I just thought it was a really eye-opening perspective to help understand even more so why the apostle knew that Again, going into this verse, and as we carry into further into the text, there is a lot of um, these unique spiritual realities that us as Western believers do not really think about a lot. And I, I think to other cultures that, that are in the midst of an animistic culture that are saved out of it, uh, these texts might speak to them almost as new believers if a, if a pastor were to open it up to them. Because they're like, I've experienced this every day of my life. And now I understand how to overcome this in Christ. And I, I have the, the power and the authority in Christ to not let the evil spiritual forces dictate and control my life and ultimately cause me to live in fear. I think in a lot of ways, when you study animistic cultures, um, there's a lot of fear they live in. They live oppressed by what might happen if they think the wrong thing, if they do the wrong thing, if they burn the wrong relationship. There are so many elements to this, but um, it, it kind of helps us uh, get a little bit of a glimpse into what Paul might be saying in this verse. So this is so that God's multifaceted or manifold wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. So in Romans 11, as we mentioned, Paul um, has this incredible passage at the end of him. What's interesting about this passage is it kind of does have a direct connection to what we're talking about now. Paul in Romans 9 through 11 is essentially talking about uh, God's purpose in using the 
unbelief of the Jews to bring salvation to the Gentiles. And what's incredible about that is that is another element of this wisdom that God has revealed to Paul, and he's speaking it in a unique way to the, the Roman, um, the, 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 the church in Rome. Yet he's essentially saying the same types of things here. They just had a different situation. Their body was made up of different issues, and they had, uh, I believe, a, a str- much stronger Jewish population, and they had Jewish-minded um, Hellenistic believers. It was a, the Roman situation was very unique and complex, but what's awesome here is that when Paul says this verse I'm about to read, I believe the heart of this is exactly what Paul is hinting on here. In his culmination of 9 through 11, Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. Um, the way that God has brought and continues to bring salvation to non-Jews, it is a plan that no human being could ever fathom and fabricate. And um, it is really deep stuff. When Paul talks about this, it is not something that a human being could create. It is something that had to be revealed to us by the mind of God. And what's awesome, you guys, is God being omniscient, God having a plan to love and redeem mankind, those who trust in him um, from all eternity. This is not something that was a last-minute thought. This is something that God had always planned to bring to fruition. But in the church age, in the season we're in, we, we were given this revelation of God's plan for the Gentiles. And it started with these men that the Lord had called. So that this plan, uh, this multifaceted wisdom may, may now be known or might now may be known. This verb is in the passive. So it's interesting. It's not the church that's actively going out and revealing this wisdom through, you know, you know vocational preaching. Um, it's interesting. It's something that God is actually doing. He's displaying what he's doing through the church to these principalities, to these powers, whatever they are, whether, I mean, it seems like they're more the evil spiritual realm, but they could also be angels. I'm not a super big theologian by any means on this topic, but the academic scholarly commentaries I wrote that know much more about this passage, they didn't seem to talk about angels at all. It seemed to be every reference had to do with, um, the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. There was, a, there, there was one commentator from the 1930s that said something along the lines of um, the example of the fact that these spiritual forces of evil did not know this plan and they had no savvy to any of it was the fact that they thought that they would be successful in not only crucifying Christ, but that would be the end of his ministry. And... Uh, God's plan all along was that that would happen so that he would bring about salvation not only to the Jew, but to the Gentiles. So their plan was completely thwarted. And so not only did the Messiah die and he rose again, but the fact that the church got out of Jerusalem and it was being built to the Gentile nations and it's still being built today, um, that is an incredible testimony, which essentially what's going on here is it's not just to the human realm, but to all of creation that God is building his kingdom through his work, and it's something that no spiritual force of evil has the ability to thwart or tear down. If God be for us, who can be against us? The work of God through the church displays his beautiful wisdom to all creation. In his restoration of mankind to himself, 
So these are the beautiful outworkings of the gospel, bringing unity between Jew and Gentile and bringing redemption and restoration to all of creation. How many of us think that the gospel has to do with creation that often? I know that up until about three years ago being in seminary, I'm not sure if, uh, if, if my pastor in California had ever talked about Romans chapter 8. It might have been one time, and I don't think he dwelled a whole lot about the extent of the gospel and, and how it actually um, brought about a redemption for the brokenness in nature and creation that was caused by man's sin. Um, it's incredible the responsibility that God gave humankind, isn't it? Um, and and the, the grave consequences of their fall to not just humanity, but all of creation. My family, we absolutely love nature. We love animals. I'm so thankful that God cares about them too. It reminds me that it's not a carnal interest or a carnal desire, but that the Lord loves his creation. It's very good, he said, when he created them, and he desires to restore them. He desires to restore all his creatures. What we can know for certain is that God's plan of redemption for the Gentiles has implications for the, for the heavenly realm. The Gentiles had lived in darkness for so long, and light has come to them. Where the nation of Israel failed, God's plan in Christ did not. As, as um, Mark talked about, I think it might have been three, three weeks ago, three or four weeks ago. Remember he went through the covenants? Remember we talked about how there was always a human covenant partner that God raised up. And often they were obedient to that covenant. Often they were disobedient, um, depending on what season of life they were in, what day, what day it was. But God had always been faithful to his side of the covenant. And what's incredible in Christ is he fulfilled the divine human covenant partner side of the agreement and the human side of the agreement because of the incarnation. He fulfilled both sides in one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. So God always had this plan. He, it's not that he purposed the Israelites to have the failure, the absolute utter failures they did. He was always pleading through the prophets that they would return to him, they would come back to him. But thank God that, that his plan of redemption was not dependent on the Jews following the law perfectly and getting the message out. I'm so thankful that it is in his work that, that us as non-Jews have salvation delivered to us. So verse 11. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, this was something in the mind of God from all eternity, and he's just rolling it out. God's plan to save the Gentiles and include them with the Jews into his body was not an afterthought, but was planned by him in eternity past. Verse 12, in him we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Can you think of a more fitting place to put that verse? Why is that? Why do you think that's here? Let me ask another question. Why are we saved? Why is salvation something that we take joy in? What is the primary benefit someone gets by being reconciled to God in Christ? To have bold, confident access through faith in him. To be able to come before the throne of grace knowing that our sins are cleansed by the blood of Christ. Our guilt is cleansed. That we might have an intimate relationship with him. That no matter what time of day, what circumstance we're in, in Christ, if you're in Christ you can go before him and 
pour out your heart to him um, and get a response. It might not be exactly what you're thinking, but he desires to speak to us. He speaks to us through his, his word. He's so faithful in that. So we have freedom of access, the beauty of our salvation, direct and continual access to the Father through Christ and by the Spirit. We were redeemed for this purpose. So a little bit of an application, and we touched on verse 13. That was the final passage. Paul is reminding them that they're in jail. Paul is reminding the Ephesians that he is in prison writing this, but that his suffering is for their glory that they might have everything they have because of his suffering, which was, again, we went over earlier, that was part of his calling. That was something that was promised to him at the onset of his salvation story, that he would suffer much for the name of Christ. So Paul knew, he didn't know the details, but he knew that it was going to be a rough road. Um, Again, thank God for a man like Paul. What what an example we have. Um, So just an application. I think verse 12, you guys, is a huge application. I I believe we should go home and just thank and praise God with ourselves and our families tonight about the access that we have as Gentiles um, through that manifold grace of God, including um, this wisdom that was hidden before time began and revealed through the Apostle Paul, the Gentile, the Gentile apostle, so that through belief in him we might be given confident access through faith in him. So what is keeping us from this deep and personal connection with the Lord? If you sense that, wow, like I know I'm a believer, but I've lost sight of that. Is it some sort of sin that needs to be confessed? Is it a sin that not only needs to be confessed to the Lord, but like in the New Testament, the command to confess your sins before one another that you might be healed? Is it a sin that we might need to bring towards a brother or a sister in Christ? Last thing, is it the need for his saving work to come into your life personally? Have you ever experienced his saving work in your life? Have you ever received the gospel? Um, I I, I pray that either of those things, if you have not trusted in Christ and given your life to him, that you would know that the gospel message is not for a very specific ethnocentric culture It is for if you are a human being, the gospel is for you, and that God in Christ is reconciled the world to him, but the only way the gospel can have application in your life is if you trust in him in faith. You have to trust in Jesus and his work on the cross. It's not something that's automatically given to someone just because Jesus died. It's something that must be proclaimed and something that must be believed upon, and that's the way God did it. I didn't write the story. Thank God someone preached the gospel to me and the, the rest is history. Um, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time. We praise you, Lord, that your word says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We thank you that you did all of the work, the works of righteousness that the law required in Christ. You accomplished everything that we could never accomplish, perfect righteousness, more justice, holiness, everything that is part of your character was displayed to us perfectly in your son. We thank you, God, that we are believers not because of our works of righteousness, but because of your works of righteousness through trusting in you to 
make us whole and deliver us and save us. And we thank you, God, as we've been speaking of, that this is something that starts right now. As we trust in you, it's not just a, a hope of a future state in heaven, although it is a new heavens and new earth, but it's a hope that we can live life right now in a relationship with you and become more like you each day. So we thank you again for this time. We pray that you would um, give us a fresh appreciation for our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.